Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me today is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard. Glenn is Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia, where he served as Dean of the Graduate School of Business. Glenn has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department and Chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. We want to use these podcasts to discuss the economic effects of the coronavirus pandemic. We're recording this one on Friday, May 1st. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Great, Tony. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So Glenn, I thought maybe today we could talk about how it is that economists didn't really see the recession coming. Over the past six weeks, as you know, 30.3 million people have filed initial unemployment insurance claims. Over the previous six weeks, only about one and a half million did. So essentially we have 20 times as many people losing their jobs and applying for unemployment insurance uh, than we did uh, just a little while ago. And not much more than two months ago, U.S. stock market indexes, like the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500, had had hit all-time highs, indicating that investors were quite confident in the future prospects of the economy. So the question is, why didn't investors, policymakers, or economists see this recession coming? Glenn, why didn't you let me know this was about to happen? (laughs) If I could do that, I'd be a billionaire hedge fund (laughs) investor instead of a professor. It's a great question. You know, the Queen of England asked it during the financial crisis, as we noted in our blog post. You know, why did nobody see it coming? And Yogi Berra once had the observation that, you know, forecasting is difficult, especially about the future. And economists have not done well with this. You know, if you look at previous recessions that are nowhere near what we're going through right now, turning points are hard to call. You could look at consensus forecasts in almost any recession. There are a couple of reasons for that. You know, one, the economy moves usually in sync among variables and turning points can be hard to see. And second, data itself isn't always accurate in real time. You know, as we note in the book, There are lots of revisions of data, and it becomes very difficult to know whether you're looking uh, at the truth. And one of the things that economists have started to do is uh, shorter forecasts or now cast estimates using data that are correlated with ultimate variables like employment or GDP, but easier to observe in real time, actually a tradition that's quite old uh, in economics. That may help short-term forecasting, but right now it's been hard. Yeah, I think that it, that is an interesting development. Sometimes it's called now casting, that you take series that come in maybe weekly and try and use those to forecast what's likely to happen to real GDP. And you have an advantage there that you've got a bunch of different series. Oftentimes they'll use 10, 15 or more of these series. And it gives you an opportunity to avoid the kind of uh, errors you can fall into if you rely on the typical series, which, as you note, tend to get substantially revised. Um, Certainly that was the case in the lead up to the 2007-2009 recession, where we now know that the initial numbers on real GDP and unemployment uh, turned out to be inaccurate and provided inaccurate guidance, therefore, to the 
um, to the policymakers at the Fed and in Congress. One thing I think that's right, and where economists sometimes sell themselves short is trying just to forecast the near term. Whereas what we're really good at, and what you know, even Econ 101 helps us focus on, is kind of if-then reasoning. If we get into this economic situation, then where are we likely to go, or what policies might be likely to help? That we're pretty good at. Uh, but the forecasting part can be hard. Yeah, I think that that's right, that uh, one of the interesting things, we, we talk in, in the blog post about a a speech that Ben Bernanke gave when he was Federal Reserve Chair in, in 2007. And this was after the, the great housing boom had begun to unravel and housing prices had begun to fall, particularly in the so-called subprime sector, right? The sector where people who had flawed credit histories had been borrowing and buying houses, uh, often with putting very little money down. And so it was clear in 2007 to Bernanke and everybody else that there were problems in that sector. And he said, just to quote him, we believe the effect of the troubles in the subprime sector on the broader housing market will likely be limited. And we do not expect significant spillovers from the subprime market to the rest of the economy or to the financial system. So we now know that that, that was incorrect and uh, in fact, we're about to have uh, a huge crisis, the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. But at the time Bernanke said that, just about everybody agreed with him. Right? The- well, you know, one person I know didn't, and it was me, because I was sitting, I was chairman of the Economic Club of New York when he gave a speech, and I introduced him. And I asked him afterward the kind of if-then question that I mentioned. I'm not a housing market expert, but if if you have um, an edifice of securities built on top of subprime, I think the problem economists were making was you take the volume of subprime lending and divide it by a really big number like GDP or total wealth, where it's going to look small. But that's a forecasting question. The if-then question is, if subprime mortgages are in trouble, what other kinds of financial contracts are in trouble? And and that's what I think a lot of people missed. Uh, So the if-then part, I think we can be good at. The forecasting part, even a Fed chairman has to be humble. Yeah, one, to pick up on your point that the if-then and and what what we can actually contribute, one of the things I think is interesting is that even though the Fed did not anticipate what was going to happen, they did, of course, respond once the, the crisis had begun. And I think one of the things that has helped the Fed this time in responding as quickly as it did is they had that experience that in 2008, 2009, they had set up these unusual lending facilities, they call them, to try to support the financial system and to try to provide funds to firms that otherwise would be unable to get them. So they got those up and running remarkably quickly this time. And I think part of it was just they had had that experience, that they knew um, how to get this done, and they were able to, uh, to start on a dime. I agree. The Fed in the 08 crisis was using Bernanke's expertise on the Depression to draw from what didn't happen but should have during the Depression. Here, we did have bold action by the Fed uh, during the financial crisis. And as you say, the Fed reacted very quickly this time. There is a difference, though, a kind of if-then difference. The last crisis was one in which the financial sector got in trouble, and it bled to the real economy. 
this is going the other way. So while the Fed interventions will go a long way, they can't solve solvency problems and real sector problems the way fiscal policy can. That's a good point. And Fed Chair Powell made that point the other day that essentially the, the Fed is really there for liquidity problems. Meaning you have a, a business bank, financial firm typically, but more widely other businesses when we get into a crisis that are fundamentally sound. It's just they can't access the funds they need to continue. The Fed as the lender of last resort can step in and say, okay, if no one else will make this loan, we'll make it because we know that this firm is fundamentally sound and once the crisis is over, we'll get our money back. But if the firm has become fundamentally unsound because it's been ordered closed by the the governor, the mayor, um, that's really not a Fed problem as we traditionally think of it because that's a situation where the company's revenues have evaporated and they're not just having trouble borrowing money, they're having trouble surviving. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think Chair Powell got it right when he said it. The problem is the Fed is trying to stand up some facilities for such firms. It's so-called Main Street Lending Facility. That's new territory, as you suggest, for the central bank. And we'll have to see how well that works. My own view is so far they're designing a program in which no one will lend and no one will borrow, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, it certainly it is uncharted territory for them. And you can tell from things uh, Chair Powell has said that he's not entirely comfortable with the position that the Fed has ended up in. There was one other point I, I thought was interesting, maybe worth making, and that is that there are interesting analogies, I think, between economic systems and biological systems. Because one way that you can interpret what happened in 2007, 2009, as you said, was that the economic system and the financial system had evolved over time in a way that wasn't obvious what was going to happen if we had a downturn in housing prices, that the economy had become much more vulnerable. And that's another way of saying the economy is complicated. There's a lot of interactions among different parts of it that um, are difficult to understand, and they don't stay static. What you think you understand about it today may not be accurate five or 10 years down the, the line. And it's similar with biology because there have been a number of people who've been saying, well, you know, why is it biologists can't explain all kinds of aspects of COVID-19 that, for instance, children don't seem to get it, which is a great blessing, but we don't quite understand that. Young adults don't much suffer from it. And that is in contrast with the 1918 flu pandemic, where a lot of, of young adults did die. You had soldiers who survived the fighting in World War I. They come back from Europe, they catch the flu, and they pass away. We don't see, there are obviously many tragic cases of young people dying, but relatively, they are unaffected. Why are men more likely to die than women? Which seems terribly unfair to me, but... It, it, it's true. And the biologists don't understand that yet just because biology is complicated, human physiology is complicated, and how this particular virus is making people ill and what characteristics people might have that might make them more susceptible or less, we don't yet know. But at some point, biologists will figure that out and come up with therapies and vaccines and economists are kind of in a similar situation, uh, as we just talked about, that in 2007, 2009, the Fed pioneered in certain lending policies, 
that seem to be effective in the sense that, as you point out, we did not have the collapse that we had in the early 1930s. Uh, the financial system did manage to recover and we had a slow recovery, but we had a recovery. And so in that sense, economists like biologists learn things and are able then to apply them down the road, even if they couldn't really predict what was going to happen ahead of time. No, it's a, gr it's a great example. And there was no, quote, economic vaccine in the 1930s, uh, the way that we had a wonder drug called the Fed uh, in the 2008 crisis. Here, of course, the COVID problem being different than the financial crisis is still causing the Fed, just like it is physicians and clinicians, to look for both a wonder drug and a vaccine. Yeah, we have to hope that just as we do eventually get the, the wonder drugs and the vaccines to deal with COVID, that we'll learn what the most effective policies that we've tried are economically, because we don't know whether we're about to enter into uh, a world in which we might have recurrences of these viruses. I think one of the things that maybe made investors, economists, policymakers relatively optimistic, even after we knew that there were thousands of cases of COVID in China, is that we had had several scares before with SARS and swine flu and Ebola, and they hadn't in the end had much effect on the United States. And so we we, uh, I think that's why the stock market was uh, reached all-time highs in February, despite there being tens of thousands of cases already in China. They didn't think we were going to be affected by it. If, in fact, we were just lucky in the past and were about to enter a, a situation where this happens fairly frequently, it'll be important that we figure out what the best fiscal and monetary policy reactions are when the next virus hits, if it does. I agree. And your point goes back to where we started about uh, why forecasting is so difficult. If we were to look at the deep past of pandemics, we may have had a global economy less connected than the one today. One reason we may have missed it is we forgot so many people are traveling, moving, supply chains, people chains that are very different uh, from eras past. So things that look like they're in one part of the world are really everywhere. Great, Glenn. So thanks very much. Um, I think we've covered the basics here of why it is that economists have some difficulty in forecasting, but how they can contribute to the development of policy. And we want to thank everyone for listening. And we hope that you will check our blog occasionally. It's hubbardobrieneconomics.com. We've been posting things there. We've probably at this point have 10 to 15 updates that you may find interesting. And we want to thank everyone for joining us for this conversation. And we look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future podcast. 